Punching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's podcast, we continue our mini-series traveling to sporting cultures all around the world. And today, we stop into South Africa for a visit. We will unpack how race is weaved into the story of South African sports and detail some of that country's defining sporting moments. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me is John Nekrasov, at best at, like, what, 75% mental capacity after the concussion you took a couple weeks ago? At best, at best, yeah. I uh, was playing a little little pickup football with some of the guys in my, my quad here at Liberty, and uh, it did not go well for me. We'll just say that. I was annihilated last Friday, and so we, uh, we postponed last week's episode due to my... Um, my the crunching tackle I received really and at this point I am I probably between 60 and 75 percent mentally capable I would say well hey we're glad you're feeling better you've come off the injured reserve list and you're back into the starting lineup <laughs> and John you better be at mental capacity because there it's is true. there is something happening in the world there is probably the most important thing that's happened honestly it's the most important thing that's going to happen both this month and next month I can tell you that and it is not the election. Right. <laughs> it is. The Mandalorian season two is coming out. And in terms of my life priorities between the election and Mandalorian, Mandalorian is definitely much higher, I would say. Um, and I'm incredibly thrilled. I'm thrilled. I haven't, I don't think either of us have watched the episode yet on Friday morning. But by the time this episode is out on the airwaves, we both will have watched it. Most of you listeners will probably have watched it. And. I can't even begin to sum up my excitement. Yeah, John, I'm not going to lie. I kind of take you as a guy who would be up at like 3 a.m. refreshing your Disney Plus, you know, access being like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? But, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you for getting some sleep and, you know. concussion. Yeah, I know. I know. We'll get to it. <laughs> we'll both of us will probably get to it tonight, I'm sure. And at least I will get to it tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely. And then maybe we can each tweet out some reactions and just – and we can talk about it next week, of course, as mm-hmm. well. So, anyway. Leading up to Christmas, we're going to have this going on. It's true. Important thought. You know, we talked about Baby Yoda and who Baby Yoda is. But, like, what are you most looking forward to in the season? Because there's so much There's so much that's been teased going into the season that, like, there are so many possible things that could happen. Yeah, I'm really excited, I think, to see... Because there's a couple scenes in the trailer where they're clearly getting chased by Imperial troopers. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious, you know, in, in season one, he's he's really getting chased by the, the baby Yoda's being sought by, you know, one guy with some loose Imperial ties. But now it's clear that the entire empire is becoming more involved in the search for this baby. And so I'm interested to see where that connection kind of comes into play more. But Chad, the empire is it is no more. Not the empire. Not the empire. The, uh, <laughs> the first order. But this isn't the first order either. Remember, this is the immediate aftermath. So like, what at least called? from my understanding. So I what think it's 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 just the remnants of the empire, right? Which is what makes it interesting. Yeah, it is the empire, but it's not the entire empire. Okay, it's, but it, you, you're misleading the listeners. I know, but we're seeing more and more. You know, that trailer has more stormtroopers. It has mm-hmm. more chases. So I'm wondering. I'm interested to see where exactly we're getting involved into, who all is getting involved in this search, and how far up the chain of power this season's going to go. Right. What about you? Yeah. Kind of similarly, I guess it's interesting to see kind of where the scope of the show goes. You know, I've been banging the drum for a long time that Star Wars needs to expand its genres and to not be stale and to like not just like follow the Marvel formula, which is fun, but like just puts out the same movie with different characters every couple of years. And everyone's like, yay, 
like for Star Wars to be a healthy franchise, it needs to kind of expand its horizons. And I think the Mandalorian is a great opportunity to do that. And like the tail end of season one really stepped that up for me. And I'm really excited, like kind of like you said, to see like how much are we going to learn about the Star Wars universe post episode six, you know, which is when the Mandalorian is set. Like, are we going to see, you know, like, like you said, regarding the chain of command, like how much of the empire is still left at this moment? Like how pivotal is the Mandalorian going to be in kind of that big story? And I also just want to see a whole lot more space Western scenes. Like I need like, a hardcore like obviously in that first episode of season one we had like that bar shootout yeah i need more of those yeah so yeah we'll definitely do a recap next week about the mandalorian and we also will have another event to watch this weekend as this is i guess the second installment of what we're calling the crunching tackles derby where our two favorite mm-hmm. english premier league teams arsenal and manchester united will play each other head to head john i don't think the fans of this podcast need to hear us just praise our teams but to no end but briefly as we head into this matchup on sunday morning late morning let's just get a quick analysis and a scoring prediction from you and then i'll do the same i'm never confident going into an arsenal game almost ever like i can count on one hand the amount of times i've been confident ever um so like that being said Mikel arteta is a good coach i've been excited to see what the kiddos are doing in the europa league um so you know i'm gonna go I'm going to say our organization wins out. Arsenal 2-1 Man United. First, I think I saw Guardian quiz. I think it would be the first win, Arsenal win at United since Tony Blair was president. Not president. Since Tony Blair was prime minister of the UK, which was a long time ago. Yeah, John, I think it's really cute that you're enjoying your youngsters' growth in the Europa League while my youngsters are enjoying their growth in the Champions League and actually doing quite well. So, John, I think you know this is one of those games where styles make fights and mm-hmm. both of these teams are known for offensive attacks and defensive errors so i would expect to see at least one or two defensive errors lead directly to goals and i'm going to go a little bit more high scoring i'm going to say three to two manchester united wins edison cavani gets his first goal for manchester united and rashford scores twice to counteract a pierre emerick Aubameyang brace for mm. arsenal yeah, well, Obama Yang hasn't scored in like five or six games, so we need him to, to step up. So I say that I'm not incredibly confident going into this game, but I feel like I have to back my own team against Chad here. So <laughs> I did beat Chad in fantasy, so I still hold that over you regardless of what happens. That's true. That is true. John, I'm really excited for this conversation because researching South Africa, it honestly kept bringing me back to things that we've been talking about here in America. Mm-hmm. As we just go into the history of South African sports and their culture, it is unmistakably tied to race. Because if I just said the country South Africa, the first thing that most people are going to think of is the apartheid era. And that apartheid era involved the isolation of South Africa from the rest of the world. And also South African sports were shunned by the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed to play in worldwide cricket, rugby, soccer tournaments. They were expelled from FIFA, the soccer federation, until they began to be more racially inclusive. And now they've had about a 25-year period of growth and trying to be more racially inclusive. But much like America, there are many ways in which South Africa is still falling short in regards to 
equal opportunity for athletes of different colors, coaches of different colors. And so as we get into this conversation, I was just struck by finding all the parallels that I found between South Africa and America. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into it. From my understanding, John, there are three really big sports in South Africa. They don't have any really big indigenous sports, but they are cricket, rugby, and soccer, which we've talked about all three on this podcast before Mm -hmm. in regards to other countries. And so, you know, maybe when as soon as you leave the United States of America, those become the three big sports. And maybe we'll continue to find that be the case. But I do want to start with that boycott. You know, we talked about Japan being an isolationist country, but that was their own choice. In this case, South Africa was shut out by the rest of the world when it came to sporting culture. So can you talk a little bit about what led to that happening and what the consequences of that were for the country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so South Africa's sporting boycott, kind of to understand that we have to go, like I always do, kind of we have to jump back into the basic history of the country and how it was founded because that's kind of that kind of determines you know what how countries culture develops um so south africa is interesting because you know obviously there were native african populations they were there like the zulu tribes um they were there for quite a long time um but the movement towards the modern country of south africa kind of begins when the dutch start settling there i think in the 17th century they kind of settle large areas. They're in conflict with African tribes in the area. The British arrive in Cape Town, which was an important important port around the late 1700s. And then they begin to have conflicts with both the Dutch settlers who are there and African tribes who are there at the same time. So ultimately, what kind of happens as we move into the 1900s is the British and the Dutch, which were eventually called the Boer settlers, started to have serious conflicts over which colonial power, you know, was going to control the region. The Boer Wars happened around the late 1800s and early 1900s, and ultimately the British won out. And there were a lot of kind of human rights violations that happened between them, not just against African populations, but between those colonial powers that ultimately ended up causing a lot of divisions between both the white settlers and the African tribes. Um, So around the early 1930s, though the British and the Dutch kind of started to reconcile a little bit and started to begin breaking away from the UK's rule. And South Africa became a legal republic in 1961, which is when kind of this whole story starts because both, specifically the Dutch, but also the British were already kind of instituting elements of basically what we now know as apartheid, um, which comes from a Afrikaans word. And by the 60s, when South Africa becomes a country, apartheid is like formally legalized into the country, right? Where you have basically black people as sub-citizens, you know, only white people can vote. Uh, a lot of the African political parties, like they were from the black population, were banned. Um, and the National Party of South Africa was the only party um, that existed. So around the same time, right, African countries began pushing for South Africa to be boycotted from sporting events. Um, And the world, even though a lot of white countries initially kind of started trying to allow them to remain in the sporting scene, um, author Douglas Booth, who writes in the Journal of Contemporary History, kind of gives an overview of how this sporting boycott worked. And a lot of kind of when we're talking about how this boycott formed, 
a lot of it kind of comes as the public's disapproval in various countries starts to line up with a lot of the African countries who are like, y'all, it's not cool to, you know, just be excluding entire segments of your population, right? Where, you know, black people can't be on the rugby team or the cricket team or whatever. Black sport was segregated. And just like in America in the 20s, you know, with baseball, there was a preeminent white sporting system and then a black sporting system. And so it kind of all came to a head when Basil de Oliveira, a black South African who played cricket for England, was going to come on tour with England to the cricket team, with England to South Africa with the cricket team in the late 60s. And South Africa banned him from coming because he was South African and therefore like viewed by the state as inferior because he was black. Um, and British Prime Minister Harold Wilson responded once the South Africans had said that they were not taking a player we wanted to send. I would have rather thought that put them beyond the pale of civilized cricket. Um, it's a very British way of saying we don't you know, want to play with them anymore. <laughs> but that's kind of how the boycott got started. And I think it's the effects of the country, the effects of the boycott on the country and the effects of that segregation on sporting culture are incredibly long lasting even today. Yeah, John. We're going to get into how this ban eventually got lifted. We're going to talk about Nelson Mandela names and you know times that people who listen to this podcast will recognize. But mm -hmm. I want to stay in the middle of this boycott for a second and kind of bring it to today. You know, we've talked about on this podcast before the power of sports in regards to ending human rights abuses. We've talked about that. One of our first podcasts was about FIFA and Qatar and the fact that FIFA is recognizing a country who has documented human rights abuses and is awarding them by letting them host the FIFA 2022 World Cup. Mm -hmm. And John, I think it's really interesting because, you know, back in the 60s, FIFA completely kicked South Africa out of its organization for racism. Yeah. And today they're turning a blind eye to human rights abuses. And so I really just think that, you know, looking at the world in today, where we still have countries like Saudi Arabia, like Qatar, like United Arab Emirates, who are so thoroughly entrenching themselves into world sports by buying teams, by hosting tournaments, by doing those things. And we've kind of forgotten the power that sports has, the power that it had back in the 60s to, you know, not give a country status when it was doing those things until it corrected its errors. And I, I just think that's worth observing looking at the world today, you know, having that history in mind. Hmm. I think I think part of the problem kind of responding to that, that it highlights isn't like South Africa, right, was basically an apostate from the world stage at that time. And the geopolitical problem with countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia is that, you know, ostensibly we are allies America is allies with them, specifically Saudi Arabia. You know, they play massive roles in the world economy. And so it's very difficult for the sporting world to kind of like take a firm stance when the rest of the world is not for obvious geopolitical reasons. When you have, you know, Turkey and Iran destabilizing the region, you know, we're trying to maintain strategic interests, you know, like the Western world that kind of runs FIFA and uh, most of the, like, the Olympic committees and stuff. You know, it's a different political situation and it's interesting you're right like we do see a different response to human rights abuses when it is harder to take a firm stance yeah. on it and you see that you know it's 
just like with the NBA, it's incredibly difficult when your money is on the line to right. take a firm stance. South Africa, it wasn't that hard to say, you know what, we're not going to play with you anymore. We're not going to tour your country because South Africa was not like a preeminent world power, a preeminent sporting power. Um, that's a good point. So that's an aside, but like I think I think it's a really interesting point that you brought up. Yeah. And so, John, you know, this is a history that everyone's going to understand, but Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned in South Africa during apartheid, is released, and he's an mm-hmm. activist, and he eventually becomes president. I've read his autobiography. I read it my senior year of high school, and in it he wrote what's now a pretty widely used quote that says, sports has the power to change the world. And, you know, as Nelson Mandela is coming to power as the country's first black president, bringing in not just a new government, but a whole new structure of government, you know, upending the entire system of South African government and creating a new system based on fairness and equality, Nelson Mandela kind of recognizes, if I'm going to make this cultural change, sports has to be part of that process. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that he does is associates himself with the national rugby team, which really is the defining team of that country. If if the Dallas Cowboys are America's team, then the South African rugby team, what they're called the... Uh, the Springboks. The Springboks, yeah. They are the South African... They are South Africa's team. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really interesting way to kind of begin to talk about what their sports look like in relation to their political influence. And so um, as we kind of get into this first sport, which is rugby, you know, I'm going to talk about this movie Invictus later Mm -hmm. as a recommendation at the end of the podcast. But, you know, what did it mean for the country to not just have a now now a racially inclusive national team, but to host the world's largest rugby tournament and kind of just get back into the idea of, we are a national, you know, we are an international part of the world again. We we matter. We're going to host these tournaments. People are going to include us again because we're taking these steps to be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the challenge with, you know, South African rugby in the 90s, right? The country started to integrate in about 1990 um, when the National Party unbanned other political parties. Yay, surprise, you know, we have democracy again. You know, they rugby at that time was a predominantly white sport. And, you know, I watched Invictus. We talked about it this maybe it was this summer. I think we talked about it on this podcast a little bit. Mm. Um, But rugby was a predominantly white sport. Right. So African, the black people in South Africa did not really identify with the sport at all. They often, you know, booed their own team and supported other teams that were playing against them. And we'll talk about soccer a little bit later, but soccer was kind of and remains in many ways the predominant black sport in South Africa. The 19, I guess it was the 1995 Rugby World Cup was in South Africa. And it, you know, it does a lot for a country when you have a national tournament being hosted in your country. You know, it does a lot for your reputation. The Russia hosting the Sochi Olympics in the middle of the Crimea crisis was like kind of a big deal, right? Um, I think back to like the 1980s, um, Moscow Olympics, you know, like Russia's trying to, the USSR is trying to amplify its public image. Even the, the joint Korea Winter mm-hmm. Olympics in 2018. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of ways, both positive and negative, that hosting a tournament like a World Cup, you know, augments your national image. And this Rugby World Cup was no different. And, you know, you see there's this kind of this steady march that's 
kind of fitful and often goes backwards and then goes forwards again um, towards racial unity in South Africa. But one of the things that the Douglas Booth that author I mentioned earlier talked about is that often maybe the the thing that brought South Africa together more than the boycott itself was the fact that sports on the smaller level started to be integrated more. And someone like, I think his name was Chester Williams, um, the one of the only or maybe the only black player on that 95 rugby World Cup team that won the World Cup for South Africa at home. You know, it does a lot to kind of make both white and black people say, you know, maybe we can both play rugby. We can play together on local teams and we can make names for ourselves. And that does so much on like the personal level to integrate a country that like it's not just a political thing, you know, like if you're a white person or a black person, you know, there is an insurmountable divide between you that has been erected by the culture. Yeah, I think the incredible part of this story and really one of the fundamental images of that era was during that World Cup final for rugby when Nelson Mandela goes on the field and he's wearing a Springboks jersey mm. and he hugs Chester, who's the only black player on that team. And in that moment, you know, he's he's sending a message to his country that this team is your team regardless of your race. Mm. There's a black player on this team. And Nelson Mandela was identifying himself as a black fan of that team. And leading up to that World Cup, there was actually a lot of talks among blacks in South Africa about, you know, changing the name of the Springboks, doing other things to give the Springboks more of a black identity and kind of erase the white identity of it by changing the name, by making it all black players doing different things. And Nelson Mandela kind of put a stop to that and said, no, this is for everyone. Mm -hmm. This team is going to be interracial we're not going to do you know we're not going to go in the reverse and take all the whiteness out of it and make it only black we're going to take what has been an only white thing and we're just going to bring ourselves into it and we're going to transcend race and make this a more inclusive environment and i think that really did say a lot about his leadership but it said Mm -hmm. a lot about the power of that team just as a part of that country's national identity and then john 15 years later South Africa hosted another world tournament, the 2010 Soccer World Cup. And, you know, you mentioned soccer as being the primarily black sport of that country. Can you talk a little bit about when soccer came to South Africa? And then we'll get into how it impacts the African culture. And then we'll get into that 2010 World Cup. Soccer is obviously it's ubiquitous in Africa now. Like basically every country plays it. Almost every country is soccer insane like you go like baseball's not a big deal in africa you know basketball does exist but like soccer soccer is life for so many of those communities um and it's really remarkable obviously kind of like we've been talking about colonization spread sports you know these cultural institutions that we're talking about were largely spread by you know, British people going around Africa and kicking balls around and then, you know, African people picking up on it and saying, oh, this is very entertaining. Like, we should try this. Um, And so obviously it was connected to rugby initially in its history. And so rugby kind of came into South Africa around the same time and then split off. Um, According to an NPR interview with Professor Peter Alegi, who kind of is an expert on African soccer, um, By the 1880s and 90s, you know, soccer is kind of forming in England and then it's already being adopted by 
African locals. Um, and so a lot of this is happening in South Africa. And as South Africa's culture is developing and the Dutch settlers and the British settlers are adopting rugby as their primary sport, soccer is kind of taking root in these isolated African communities that are separated from, you know, the people who are oppressing them, which is incredibly interesting in terms of the way cultures adapt cultural institutions that may, you know, rugby was seen as a tool of the oppressors, you know, it was like not something they wanted to identify with. But soccer, for some reason, took root in a different way. South Africa also hosted a tournament, the Africa Cup of Nations in 1996, after that boycott, which, funnily enough, they also won, just like the Rugby World Cup. Um, And so Mandela viewed both soccer and rugby as kind of these ways that the country could be integrated in a profound way. I think that's I think it's really interesting because it says a lot about, you know, it's not often that a world leader really takes sports seriously for understandable reasons, mm. but it's interesting to see it intentionally be used and to consider, you know, how much of a serious impact it actually has versus like, I guess, kind of papering over the cracks in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. John, when I think about soccer in South Africa and really soccer throughout the continent of Africa. Unfortunately, my takeaway is just this sense of a lack of success Mm -hmm. um, in a way that is somewhat hard to describe, but we'll we'll try to put our finger on the issue here in the next couple minutes. But, you know, you mentioned that South Africa won that tournament and then in 2010 they hosted the World Cup. And in fact, South Africa actually outperformed what they would be expected to do in that World Cup. They beat a superior Mexico side. They... I'm sorry, they drew with the Superior Mexico side, and then they beat a, you know, on paper, a more talented France side. You know, you explained to me that that team mm-hmm. was imploding at the time. It had a bunch of other issues, but on paper, that France team was better. Yeah. And then they lost to a Uruguayan team that reached the semifinals. And so, you know, overall, they had a good tournament, but, you know, they didn't outperform, and there was no African team in the semifinals, and there really has never been an African mm-hmm. team really in the top levels of World Cups, of soccer globally. And I think that really is a big issue. And there will be, you'll get a incredible player from an African country, like Mohamed Salah from Egypt, Sadio Mane from Senegal, someone like Odi Nagalo from Nigeria. But from top to bottom, those teams don't have the, the structure, the organization, the talent pool. Or they might have the talent, but they don't have a way to develop the talent into a team that can compete with European teams, even South American teams. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I just wonder how does South Africa kind of play into this larger picture? And does is a 2010 World Cup kind of a microcosm for really what is a much bigger problem for that entire continent when it comes to soccer? Yeah, I mean, like I said, like soccer is huge in Africa and some of the best players in history have been from Africa, um, but you have never really seen, you know, the one exception is the Ghana team in 2010 that almost made it to the semifinals and was famously denied by Luis Suarez being an absolute Chad on the on the goal line and handballing the ball out of the net. Famously, Ghana missed the penalty afterward and then went out. You know, South Africa was the first team to host a World Cup and then go out of the World Cup in the first round. So, you know, they had some good results, but, like, they didn't make it. They weren't good enough. And you see constantly, like, 
there's this constant theme of inconsistency within a lot of African national teams where they develop a great team with a solid core of good players and then there's a lack of organization, bribery scandals arise, like, um, you know, there's a huge controversy in 2014, I think, um, with the Cameroonian national team with a lot of talented players that then ended up having this, like, really strange, massive wage dispute in the middle of the tournament, and they ended up just, like, all going home. Um, it was just incredibly bizarre. And, you know, South Africa built all this infrastructure for the 2010 World Cup, and, you know, Guardian writer Jonathan Wilson you know, did a review of kind of everything that had been done a few years later for Sports Illustrated. And ultimately, like, they didn't need the stadiums. The infrastructure hasn't changed much. The landscape of African football since 2010 has been totally static. No team since Ghana has looked even close to breaking that semifinal barrier for African soccer. And, like, looking back, like, 2010 was the first World Cup that I ever watched. Like, I love the tournament. The sound of like the vuvuzelas, those funky horns in the stands, like always buzzing like bees, like that for me, like as a kid, was like the seminal moment. Um, and so it was kind of like it felt for the continent of Africa like this high point. But you see constantly this theme that like you know the political organization and solidity of a country's infrastructure ultimately trickles down into its sporting success. You know the more willing your government is to invest the you know the lower your corruption the more likely you are to have successful sports teams because that's how successful sports teams operate on consistency and consistent income and with you know across the board there are exceptions but across the board you see so often african countries struggling with that kind of those kind of corruption issues even in south africa right now um and so it's incredibly difficult for the sports teams to kind of jump over those barriers and i think that's why even though they're phenomenal players in africa players like yaya toure who went on to man city and was one of the greatest midfielders of all time you know from ivory coast you just you don't see that consistency that you really need to thrive on the international stage from those countries which honestly it just makes me really sad you know yeah yeah it's an it's an ongoing struggle and it kind of leaves this conversation in a place of uncertainty and without closure you know, it's one of those things where this is a relatively new sporting culture. Really, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna take South Africa and we're gonna put it into chapters, as soon as apartheid ended, their sporting culture kind of started right over. It really is only about twenty five years old, and it's still growing and it's still developing. Unlike Japan or India, these countries where we've been talking about their sporting culture since like six hundred A.D. Mm-hmm. Like, no, this was nineteen ninety. 1994 that we even start talking about the sporting culture in these countries and so it leaves us with a place of uncertainty and maybe it's something that we'll come back to when crunching tackles is in its 700th episode you know in a few years from now and we'll come back and there'll be some big improvement yeah it is uh, there's kind of one mark of hope i think though you know in 2019 the south african rugby team won the world cup again in japan ironically enough led by Sia Kolisi, who is the nation's first black captain in history. Um, And they beat England in that tournament. And it was kind of, I guess it's kind of a mark for me, like, you know, the country was still very much divided in 1995, and it still in many senses is divided today. Um, But a lot of the articles I read, you know, and everything I hear from that country, you know, that win last year 
kind of continues to signify the fact that it's a country rebuilding. You know, like you said, it's not that long ago. Like 25 years ago is not like that's four years older than me, you know, for a country to try to try to revive itself, you know, to find its own legs, to find unity between people that, you know, 30 years ago were at each other's throats and in some cases are still at each other's throats today. You know, I hope that sports can continue to play a role in forming that culture and forming the culture of a country that's trying to find its identity on the national stage. And I think it, I think they're helping, but it's definitely, it's a big, it's a big, big conversation. I think that's really well said. And I think we can leave this part of the conversation right where it is. Um, Make sure to reach out to us on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter. We're going to put out a request for a poll in the next week when we do our next episode of this mini series. Take us wherever you want us to go. If it's somewhere in North America, like Canada, somewhere in South America, we'll go to New Zealand, anywhere. Just let us know where you would like the Crunching Tackles podcast to go, and we will dive into that country's culture, kind of get some observations and some takeaways, and we'll continue to do this really until we've gone around the world. Mm -hmm. John, I think we'll leave this part of the conversation right here, and when we come back, you, you and I each have a VAR corner with some decisions and observations to make from the week, and we'll be right back with that. And we are back with VAR Corner, where we're handing out some clear and obvious observations and decisions this week. John, do you mind if I go ahead and go first? Because yours is a much more lighthearted one. I mean, rather end with that. Go ahead. John, I'm going to give a really quick error, and then I'm going to do a really quick recommendation. So I'm going to do two. Mm-hmm. My error, and everyone has talked about this, so I'm going to keep this short, but I, I would feel like I have neglected this podcast if I do not mention... Kevin Cash's decision to pull Blake Snell in Game 6 of the World Series. Kevin Cash is a man of pattern, he's a man of plan, and he sticks to his plan. And his plan for Game 6 of the World Series was to not let his starting pitcher Blake Snell pitch the third way, the third time through the lineup to Mookie Betts to lead off the sixth inning. It was a mistake, not to lead off later on in the sixth inning, and it was a massive mistake. Because Blake Snell was absolutely dealing. He had nine strikeouts. He'd only allowed two hits when he was taken out of the game. No runs with nine strikeouts, and he was pulled. Now, if the Rays had gone on to win the game, no one would be saying a word about Kevin Cash. But they lost, and so the mob is coming for Kevin Cash, and I will join my name among them. Analytics are generally good for sports, I believe. Mm -hmm. But at some point... There has to be a veto of analytics. When you watch a guy strike out Mookie Betts two times, mm-hmm. he struck out the top of the order, batters number one through three for the Dodgers. He struck them all out twice through the lineup with six strikeouts. And he decided to not let them go a third time. And I just think it was wrong. I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm also going to say congratulations to the Dodgers. Congratulations to my buddy Peter Gooch. Congratulations to that whole city. A special congratulations to Joe Kelly. You are my hero. And I would just like to say that the Dodgers were robbed of a World Series in 2017, and so they deserve to have a ring, and they have one now. Amen. Secondly, my recommendation, and this is South African-themed, but John and I have mentioned the movie Invictus on this podcast before, and a lot of our conversation today is also covered in that movie. If you haven't seen it, it features Morgan Freeman as Nelson Mandela and Matt Damon as the captain of the South African rugby team. It is an incredible dramatization of really just a lot of the history that we've been discussing. It goes through the 
presidency of Nelson Mandela, how he interacts with the rugby team, the politics surrounding that team leading up to the 2020 or the 1995 Rugby World Cup, the way he supported that team, the way that the team overcame a lot of prejudice and difficulty. And it just is a really, really good movie. And I would really recommend it to anyone. Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon are both phenomenal actors. They do a really good job. The movie is moving. It's powerful. It's packed with a lot of history. And it leaves you feeling optimistic for what humanity can achieve when we all come together and pursue a common goal. Hmm. It is. I can only add to that. I saw it, like I said earlier this episode, saw it this summer. It's a fantastic movie. Even my dad, who hates sports movies, loved that movie. So that should be enough recommendation for you. My far corner, quite simply, goes to who could, someone who could be dubbed the greatest soccer manager and maybe Instagram personality of all time. Our hero that we've mentioned numerous times in this podcast, Jose Mourinho, Tottenham Hotspur's manager. He, you know, his, his team is pretty good. He's got some good players. That being said, they lost, I believe it was to Antwerp in the Europa League yeah, yesterday. Yeah. And our man Jose, okay, he, he posts a picture on his personal Instagram of him just staring into the distance, sitting on the team bus with his mask on, just staring. And it's clearly implying that someone had to take this picture for him, you know, standing in the aisle. He says, he says, here, here take the picture. Take the picture for me. Caption, bad performances deserve bad results. Hope everyone in this bus is as upset as I am. Tomorrow, 11 a.m. training. That's it. And guys, if you follow so many of the bland and boring social media accounts of professional athletes who just post lame things, lame, you know, next week we go again, lads, you know, generic. Good win, bless up. Uh-huh. Generic, you know, like highlight reel photos and like pictures with their dog guys follow jose at jose Mourinho on instagram because he will brighten your day i saw this and i said you know what this is an this is an instagram account worth following and i don't follow athletes and managers almost ever on instagram i would like to push back to one thing you said not on my behalf but on behalf of my wife there's oh. no such thing as a generic dog photo on Meg on instagram generic <laughs> dog photos are all national treasures you're welcome megan Okay, uh, I won't. I won't push back at that because I feel like I'll get in trouble. So you will. You will. Thanks, Megan. Sorry, Megan. But yeah, no. It, it is a. It is a great Twitter account. He's. I don't know if he's trying to be funny, but he is very funny. He's also just very blunt. Mm. And it just. It. It is a good time. I don't know if he runs his own Instagram. I like to think he, he has does. to. There's no I, I way. I really hope he does. The, the captions are too bizarre. He posted a picture of last time on the way there of him eating chips on the flight so like <laughs> it's, it's really really good it's phenomenal but yeah that's that's all i have to give to you guys follow him and uh, the var panel says approved approved yes approved if it doesn't mess up your instagram follower to follow following ratio go ahead and give him a follow <laughs> john i think that's where we're going to leave this episode of crunching tackles thank you guys so much for hanging out with us today and being part of this discussion mm. we would love to have you interact more actively on instagram or twitter let us know what you think about what we're doing let us know where you'd like to have us go next week let us know if you have any specific stories about a country or a personal memory of a place you've been or a particular moment in sporting culture that stands out to you 
John, where can the people find us and what do we need to do to help us get this podcast out to more people? As always, hit us up on the Instagrams, hit us up on the Twitters, hit us up on the Facebooks. We are on basically every podcasting platform that you could dream of. And if you use a platform that we're not on, let us know and we will put it on there as well. Um, but yeah, we um, are always looking, like Chad said, for more content. And we want to hear your Mandalorian questions for next week because by next week we will have seen it and we will be breaking down every last moment. Maybe we'll even do Instagram specials. We could John, do an Instagram we, live. We could. That'd be we fun. should. Do you want to do, do think, one? Yeah, we should. John, do you think we should just like for the next like until the season two ends, should we just replace Varkorn with a five minute Mandalorian conversation? I think we can do that. I think we should. All right, starting next week, guys. Mandalorian recaps. And maybe we'll go. Maybe we'll do an Instagram live tonight or tomorrow. That'd be a lot mm -hmm. of fun. And maybe we'll we do. Can, yeah, go ahead. And make, we'll make sure to check out John and I. I'm sure we'll have some banter over the Arsenal Manchester United game on mm -hmm. Sunday as well. There will be some banter going back and forth. Yeah, and we will put a spoiler warning before the Mandalorian section, you know, because we probably will discuss with spoilers. Um, yeah. So just be forewarned. Yeah. So if you if when it, when we go to our first first break, if you don't want to hear Mandalorian spoilers, just stop there. We won't be mad. We won't get angry or anything. But if you mm -hmm. if you are keeping up with the Mandalorian as closely as we do, make sure to stay tuned for part two of the next few podcasts where we're going to have Mandalorian episode recaps, and we are stoked about it. John is showing me his Star Wars shirt as we speak. I bought a Mandalorian mug at TJ Maxx yesterday, so I am ready to go. We are so ready. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we, until next week, when we are back with another episode of Crunching Tackles, we'll talk to you guys later. All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers.